We appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors. We're glad that you're here and hope you'll come back and be with us again. We're continuing a study through the book of, or portion of the book of Revelation in the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. Some of these churches were good churches, as we've already noted in the previous studies, such as Smyrna and Philadelphia. Some were both good and bad, such as the church at Thyatira that we're about to study about in just a moment. And there was one church that was bad. I mean, there was no commendation given at all. So as we travel throughout Asia Minor, if we were traveling there and we live there and this was the current circumstance, we're looking for a church we want to identify with. We find one that's good, one that's bad, one that's good and bad, and so on down the line. Most of us would want to be in that good church. None of us want to be in a bad church, but most likely we find ourselves in a church like Thyatira. That is where there is some commendable things. But there's also some commendation, condemnation given, as well as the commendable things. We've looked at the church at Ephesus. It was a church, the problem was it left its first love. The church at Smyrna was a church under pressure. Things were bad and they were about to get worse. The church at Pergamos was a church that compromised. Let's begin now at Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 18. This is a longer letter than the ones we've already studied. And here's the letter to the church at Thyatira. This is a church that got a letter that said, you have allowed the wicked to do their work. That is not a very commendable thing to say. In other words, this was a church that was tolerant. Similar in ways to the church at Pergamos that had made some compromises. This was a church that was tolerant. Now, why do we know about Thyatira? Well, very little. It was a city here in the circle before you that it was to the northeast of Ephesus and Smyrna and southeast of Pergamos. We know little from the text about the city. It was the same city from which Lydia was from in Acts chapter 16. And other than that, we know very little about the city. But there was a church there and a church that had some commendable things as we visit, and if we were pretending we're visiting there, we, our first impression is going to be it's a good church. I mean, they're doing quite well in some areas, but there is a problem, and we'll see what that problem is as the letter unfolds. Let's begin at verse 18. To the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. I know your works. Love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into the, to a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works. 
Now to, you who's, uh, uh, now to you I say that to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not, do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put you to no uh, other burden. But hold fast to what I have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my words unto the end, to him I will give the power over the nations. He that rules with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel as I have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A little longer letter than we saw in the previous letters. But here is a letter that was written to a tolerant church. We don't learn it first in visiting or at least reading the letter how tolerant they are. We see some good things first. But here's what we're going to see in this letter. We're going to see the messenger of this letter. We're going to see the strength of the church, the weakness of the church, the warning given, and the assurance given to this church. Five things we're going to notice about the tolerant church. Let's start with the messenger. The messengers must be important. Because the messenger is identified in verse 18 and in verse 23. So let's go back to verse 18. In verse 18 he says, These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. The messenger is identified here as the Son of God. Deity. Means he's God himself. John 17 says if he's deity, he's the judge of all the earth. When you stop and think about what that should do for us, that one day we'll stand before the judge of all the earth who is God himself, who has all the other qualities mentioned here, that should stir us to do what we ought to be doing. To stop doing what we shouldn't be doing, as in the case here in this church. So who said this about the church? It's one thing for someone to give an assessment of a church and say, I think it's a bad church, when maybe they're not giving a correct assessment. But whatever the Son of God says, it is the correct assessment of that church. The text describes him as having eyes like a flame of fire. You'd say he had eyes like, uh, of fire, but eyes like a flame of fire. That may refer to his anger when he saw the problems. It may refer to the penetrating nature of his vision, or it may include both. In other words, he has this all-seeing eye. He has this penetrating nature of his vision that he sees and knows all that goes on within a church and within your life. But his anger is stirred at what he sees of the tolerant nature of this church, the compromising nature of the church at Pergamos. Or the church lefting, leaving its zeal like in the church at Ephesus. But he also mentions he has feet like fine brass. And I cite Revelation 1.1. That's the verse that just simply says this letter was written in signified language. It's symbolic language. Much of it is. Symbolizes something. It has, he has feet like fine brass. That may refer to the firmness of his stand against sin and against error. That he firmly stands against the kinds of works of Jezebel. And the sin that she encourages people to commit. He has feet like fine brass. It may refer to the beauty of his stand. But notice furthermore, he searches the minds and the hearts. He searches the mind. Look at verse 23. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. Verse 23. In other words, he knows all. And he examines fully before he passes judgment. Quite frequently, somebody may pass judgment on you or on this church. 
or some other church, and they haven't fully examined to be able to make that kind of judgment. They don't know all the details. They're passing judgment when they don't know the detail. They don't know the facts. There's data that's missing, but not with Christ. He searches the minds and the hearts. Again, you think of what comfort that is on the one side, but also what fear that instills in the mind of the recipient of the letter, that the one who's writing this letter is deity himself. He has eyes like a flame of fire. His anger is stirred. He has firm stand against, against sin, and he searches all and he knows all. Whatever he says, it is accurate, and it is something that should stir us have better service to the Lord. Now, we visit this church for a little while and we begin to see some strength in this church in verses 18 and 19. The letter begins on that note. Some commendable things. What kind of things do we see that are strong? Well, first of all, he mentions their works. Notice at verse 19, I know your works and your love and your service and your faith and your patience. As Haley observes in his work on the letters to the seven churches, that the works could be either good or bad, and in this context, they seem to be good. God's in the context of other good things, other good qualities. In other words, this was an active church. It's a busy church. They were doing things. Perhaps you've visited churches or been a member of a church where you say, they're not doing anything. They're inactive. It's dead. One brother described a church that he was a part of. He said, all we lack is just putting one more shovel full on it and we think we've got it buried. It's dead. It's inactive. Not this church. This is a very active church. They're busy. They're doing things. Not only that, they have love. I know your works and your love. They have love for God. They have love for truth and they have love for others. And I know your service. Their service to God, their service to others, driven from that love. Because they love God, they're serving God. Because they love others, they're serving others. Because they love God, they're serving others. We visit a few times at Thyatira, and we're quite impressed. This is a church that's active. They're not dead at all. They're, they have love for God. They have love for truth. They have love for others. They're serving God. They're serving others. But they also have faith, according to verse 19. That comes from hearing the word of God. They believed on the basis of the evidence. This is their reaction to the word. This is how they react to the word of God. They accept the word of God. Perhaps it includes their obedience to the word. I'm impressed. What I'm seeing in this church. This is an active church that's full of love, full of service, and also full of faith. I'll tell you something else about this church. They have patience. Look at verse 19. Your patience their perseverance, their steadfast. They didn't give up when the pressure is on. They're not those who throw up their hands and quit. They're not one who runs from, from the, the problems that, that are faced upon them because of the Roman Empire. They persevere through all of that. I'm, I'm impressed. But now notice it, verse 19. As for your works, the last are more than the first. As for your works now, I want to go back and talk about that the writer is saying. I want to talk about your works. Your works are greater than at the first. What does that mean? That means they've grown, they've progressed. We may recall from memory that we visited this church once before and they were good, but they seem to be better now. They seem to have grown and doing more than they used to do. They've always been active, but they're far more active now. They're doing more now than they did at first. And oftentimes it's just the opposite. Perhaps you've known of churches that used to be active and now they're not very active. They used to be more evangelistic. They're not very evangelistic. 
They do, used to do more in the service of others, but they're not doing much in the service of others. Not this church. I want to tell you, so far this is an impressive group. We might want to identify and be a part of this church. Because I want to be a part of a church that works and has love and service and faith and endurance. And they're growing and they're developing and they're doing more now than they used to do. The last is greater than the first. There's a problem. There's a problem. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. This is very common in these letters. In spite of the good, in spite of all that you're doing, in spite of all the good qualities, there is something against you. What is that? Because you, notice this word, allow. You might circle or underline that word allow in your Bible. You allow that woman Jezebel. You allow something. In other words, this was a tolerant church. There's something that they allow. The English standard uses the word tolerate. You allow that woman Jezebel. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate her. And you allow her to teach some things. We'll say more about what she's teaching here in just a moment. But this was their weakness. They, they claimed to be doing what was right and trying to serve God and they seemed to be impressive. But on the other hand, they're tolerant of something. Well, what are they tolerant? They allow that woman Jezebel. Let's stop and talk about Jezebel just for a little bit. Jezebel was an Old Testament character. She was the wife of that wicked king Ahab found over in 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 25. Actually, she's found from chapter 16 to uh, 22 or a little further. But in those, that context... You see this wicked woman Jezebel. This reference in 1 Kings 21, 25, that Ahab did wicked in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. In other words, she encouraged him to do things and she prompted him to do things that were contrary to the will of God. In this context, this has seemed to be used symbolic, just like Balaam was used symbolically back earlier in verse 14 of the same chapter. One really talking about Balaam himself, but the same principle that Balaam followed, the doctrine of compromise, they're following in the church at Pergamos. Same thing here. That there was somebody or a group of somebody in the church at Thyatira that was like unto Jezebel. It may refer, as some think, that it refers to a faction within the church. That here's a small group within the church that was functioning much like Jezebel functioned, stirring others to do wickedness. It may refer to some woman that had an evil influence. There may have been a woman that was teaching false concepts. That we're going to talk about what that was in a moment. It may refer to that. But she claimed to be a prophetess. What does that suggest? Well, whoever this is, whether it's a group of people, it may be a faction. Or it may have been a woman herself. that They were claiming to either be speaking by God or at least they were making the claim that their advice was in harmony with God. She was claiming to be, in essence, a prophetess. I'm speaking for God, or at least what I'm saying is in harmony with God. And I'm trying to tell you what I'm telling you is the truth, and you need to follow this. God approves of what I'm saying. But the church there was tolerant of that. What were they doing? They were allowing Jezebel. As I've already mentioned, the English Standard translates that tolerating her. Tolerating this error. Let's go back now to verse, uh, verse uh, 20. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, 
to teach and beguile my servants. You're tolerating Jezebel to do her teaching. Now let me talk about what she was teaching in a moment. What I want you to notice is the church itself was not doing that themselves. But they were tolerating that. In other words, the church didn't get behind the doctrine that whatever she's teaching, whatever she's encouraging, whether it's a faction or a woman, but they were in allowing and tolerating that to go on. They weren't saying, you know, what you're doing and teaching is true. What you're doing and saying, you have our approval. They were just merely tolerating that. I want you to notice that again in verse 20, he said, you allow, you tolerate that. What that suggests is it could have been stopped, but they did nothing to do that. Nothing was done to stop the influence of Jezebel. They were condemned for not taking action. It's not that, they, uh, that the text is saying you agree with her doctrine. You are promoting the same doctrine, but you're just tolerating that doctrine. And you're just as responsible as she is. Now what were they allowing? They were allowing them to teach Christians to commit adultery. Now let's notice what she said, what's said in verse 20. You allow that woman Jezebel to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality. To eat things sacrificed to idols. You're allowing her to teach Christians to commit adultery. I don't think that's literal adultery, but let's stop and footnote before we go and make spiritual application of that. There are doctrines being taught among brethren and the world that encourage a physical, literal adultery. The divorce and remarriage era that's being taught encourages people to commit adultery. When that's tolerated, we're allowing and tolerating adultery to be taught. But that's not really what he's talking about in this context. They were allowing the teaching to cause people to commit spiritual adultery. How so? It may be, as some have suggested, by telling, telling and encouraging Christians to join the trade guilds with its sacrifice and the idols and with its drunken revelry and debauchery. In other words, you join that and you can avoid then the pressures of Rome. Where Rome was saying, what you need to do is, you need to burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, or we may kill you. Or you may not be able to trade. You may not be able to buy and sell at the stores. And you may not be able to trade and have your, your goods bought or sold. So you could join the trade guilds and make a compromise here. And so people are committing spiritual adultery by joining the trade guilds and sacrificing to idols all in a matter of trying to, to keep themselves alive and keep themselves going. Perhaps by encouraging that, she's allowing and teaching this concept of committing Adultery, spiritual adultery. This is interesting. There is no evidence. There is no evidence that they had quit altogether serving the Lord. Listen to Bobby Duncan in Spiritual Sword. He said the woman or the faction referred to as Jezebel had not quit the church at Thyatira and was not encouraging others to quit the church. Many there are who would not think of quitting church altogether, but who would compromise with the devil on first one thing and then another. Sometimes we think the, the sure evidence someone has given up on the Lord is that they've just quit going to church altogether. They had not quit altogether. What they're doing is tolerating something that they shouldn't tolerate. The church is not encouraging that. Jezebel's not encouraging that. Just compromise with Satan. Notice what they're doing. The problem is they're allowing her to sin and lead others to sin. 
They're letting that go on. They don't approve of that, but they're allowing that to go on. Now, I want you to notice the church bore some responsibility here. This letter, let's go back and read verse 20 and 21. And see if you don't get the same conclusion. And what I want you to see before we read that is the church bore some responsibility. God held the church just as responsible as the members who were teaching that. The blame is not just on Jezebel, but it's on the church for tolerating Jezebel. Let's go back and read verse 20 and 21. I have this against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. They're just responsible as she is. Oh no, they don't encourage it. They just tolerate it. They allow that. Now I know the weakness. Now I'm, I was impressed with this church when I first visited this church. I saw great qualities, a very active church. A church full of faith and full of service and full of love. But there's a weakness there. They're tolerating things they shouldn't tolerate. There's a danger in that. So let's talk about the warnings given in verses 21 to 23. The weakness of the church demands warnings to be given to the church and to the followers and the jeopardy that's involved in that. Let's see what that involves. I want you to notice that, first of all, they had rejected the opportunities and refused to repent. That is, Jezebel and her followers had refused. They had rejected every opportunity. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Jezebel had been given time, but she stubbornly refused. English standard seems to lend to that concept. The New Century translated that, but she did not want to change. I gave her ample opportunity to make a change in her life, but she refused to change. She didn't want to change. She wanted to go on doing what she was doing. There is no excuse when Jezebel gets to judgment for rejecting God by saying, you know, God, you're unfair about that because God gave her every opportunity to do that. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, now they face a judgment to come. That I will kill her children with death. Her children means those who she's influenced, I take. So here's Jezebel. She's influenced others. That's her children, those who followed after her teaching, those who've been led to commit spiritual adultery, sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed unto idols. Those that she's influenced, they're going to pay a price. This footnote here. Quite often someone thinks the idea that here's a false teacher if they have, someone's been misled by them, the person who's been misled is not going to be held accountable for that. The false teacher might be, but not the one who's misled. Her children are going to be cast into the sickbed. But notice the description here. He said, first of all, here's what's going to be take, taking place. Verse 23, I will kill her children with death. Let's back up to verse 22. I will cast her into a sickbed. I think there's a play on the adultery and the sickbed. In contrast to the bed of adultery, it's now going to be a sick bed. A bed of sickness is in contrast to a bed of adultery, Beckworth said. Not into a bed of ease, but a bed of pain. Here is one who's gone after a bed of ease, a bed of pleasure. Now they're going to be in a bed of sickness is what's going to take place. I'll cast her into sick bed. And those that have committed adultery with her into great tribulation. In other words, great pain, great agony. There's going to be great suffering come. There's judgment coming. Unless they repent of their deeds. We'll say more about that, of their, their deeds. 
We're looking at the punishment that comes upon them. So here's the sick bed. The bed of pleasure becomes a bed of pain. There is the great tribulation. They're going to be killed with death. But now notice verse 22, the choice was there, theirs. He said they'll be cast into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Punishment is coming for them unless, unless they make a change. They had every opportunity, but they're not making a change. Now let's look at the assurance that's given in verses 24 to 25. 24 to 29, rather. What kind of assurance is given? Here's a church, the messenger, the strength, its weakness. We've seen the warning. What about the assurance that's given? Well, notice in verse 24, here's one of the things that's assuring. And that is not all have compromised their sin. Look at verse 24. But, I, but to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan as they call them, I will put you under no, uh, put you under no other burden. Now what's he talking about? Well, one of the things I learned from that is that not everybody makes a compromise. You look around in this church and what comfort it is to look around in the church at Thyatira and there are some that are teaching something they shouldn't be taught. There are those that are tolerating that, but not everybody has compromised. Not everybody has compromised. That's assuring to look around that not everyone is involved in the troublesome doctrine. Not everybody's involved in that. There's still some strength left in the church. Now notice he says that the Lord knows and understands at verse 24. He said, but I say to you, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put you under no other burden. Now, that's quite interesting. There is this first burden, but I'm not going to add any further burden to that. What is he talking about, under no other burden? The Lord knows and understands the burden of trying to live right. And, they're suppo- and while you're trying to live as a Christian life, and those who are not living as a Christian should, is making that harder on you. And he said, those who are trying to live right, I'm not going to put you under no other burden. That is a harder burden than you're already facing. I'm not going to do that. Now, let's go further at verse 24. Notice he says at verse 24, the Lord knows and understands. And then furthermore, verse 25 to 26, you can endure and you can overcome. You can endure and you can overcome. In spite of the problems at Thyatira, in spite of all the difficulty, there are those that hold fast. Look at verse 25. But hold fast what you have till I come. You hold fast. In other words, you hold steadfast. And you can overcome. Look at verse 26. You can overcome. He who overcomes will, uh, uh, and keeps my works till the end, I will give him power over the nations. Now we'll talk about the power over the nations in a moment. But... Notice at the end of verse 20, or first part of verse 26, the one that overcomes and keeps my works to the end. You can endure and you can overcome. Don't give up on this church at Thyatira. There's some good marks in the church. There's some problems, but you can overcome. Now let's talk finally about the reward given in verses 26b through verse 29. What's he talking about? Well, what's the reward? First of all, he said, to the one who overcomes, I will give him power over the nations. In what sense? He's not saying that if you overcome and you remain faithful, you have some power and rulership over all the nations of the earth. Not what he's talking about. 
But what I think he's talking about is his evidence in verse 27. The nations do not control the destiny of the saints. Rome doesn't control the destiny of the saints. In other words, I'm going to give him power. To the one who overcomes, I'm putting power in his hand. And he has power over the nations in what sense? The nations do not control the destiny of the saints. You say, how do you know that's what he's talking about? Look at verse 27. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. This is a quotation from Psalm 2. Quotation from Psalm 2. Here's the evidence of what he just said in verse 26b. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as a potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces. In other words, the invincible power of the Christ to shatter the nations that resist against him is what enables you to know that the, the nations are not going to control the destiny of the saints. In other words, it's, another, it's a little fancier way of saying God rules in the kingdoms of men. God's still in control. So to the one who overcomes, you just remember God's in control and the nations don't control you. Rome doesn't control you, but there is one stronger than, than the nations themselves, and that is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who rules over them with a rod of iron, and he can take them like a potter's vessel, and he can shatter the nation. That'll be done with Rome, that can be done with any nation, whatever nation that may be. And so they're going to be rewarded in that sense. Let's go further and finish the chapter. Look at verse, verse 25. And I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Perhaps that refers to the guidance that God gives. As one writer, Ray Summers, suggests that God's guidance and leadership in the dark and hours of trouble. But I think Haley captures the thought when he suggests it's, it's the idea that he will give them uh, the ability to conquer a new day. The night's almost over. In other words, this, let's go back and read look at verse 28. I will give him the morning star. It's the promise of a brighter light coming. The morning star suggests the sun is coming up. The night's almost over. That morning star tells you the night's almost gone. And the sun is about to shine. And so what's the reward of remaining faithful? It, it, this is almost over. The pressure's almost over. Whether it's talking about this life or whether it's talking about the pressures of Rome. And there's going to be this reward. So what have you learned from Revelation chapter 2 beginning at verse 18? Here is a tolerant church. What was going on in the church? Well, we visit the church and we see that the assessment that we read about is an assessment that was given by the Lord himself, the one who knows all and sees all, knows the minds and knows the hearts. So what he says is accurate. We saw the strength of this church. We're quite impressed when we visit for a little bit. Has works, has patience, they have endurance, but they have some toleration of things they shouldn't tolerate. They're allowing teaching to go on and encouragement to go on that shouldn't be going on. And it's leading people astray. The warning was, I gave them a chance to repent and you need to repent as well. You need to change. Quit tolerating that. And the assurance is God will bless those who remain faithful. That's what we see in the tolerant church. May God help us not to be the tolerant church that we read about at our time. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?